Hello, Daily Lobo readers, and welcome to the second edition of The Howl, the Daily Lobo's weekly podcast where we break down this week's biggest stories with the reporters who wrote them. This week, I'm pleased to be joined by Daily Lobo Editor-in-Chief Alex McCausland as we speak about the current state of the paper, reflect on the fall, and also look ahead to the plans for the spring. Also in this week's edition is Daily Lobo News Editor Lisa Knudsen, who wrote this week, State Money for Child Care Available to Graduate Students. In addition, Liam DeBonis, Daily Lobo Photo Editor, is also on the podcast this week, who breaks down his two articles, More Stimulus Money for Students, But Timing Remains Uncertain, and State Police National Guard Troops Patrol Roundhouse in Response to FBI Warnings. And also on the podcast this week is Daily Level freelance reporter Anna Strait, who wrote this week, UNM Files to Block Graduate Students' Union's Right to Organize. So Alex, now that the paper is back in print, uh, given this past Monday's edition, how excited are you to see the newspaper back up and running? I'm very excited. Um, towards the end of the fall semester, uh, we had to shift to digital printing. Um, because the state went back on lockdown, I think at some point, because of the raising like COVID cases. So it's really nice to see all the stories in print again. I mean, it means a lot to the reporters. I mean, I remember when I was first a reporter at the Daily Lobo, uh, having my first story like printed in a physical newspaper was huge. It was like the thing that kept me going. And now that the paper is back in print and plans are starting to be laid for the rest of the spring semester, is there anything in particular on the horizon that you're most excited to see um, and that you feel that the staff will be able to engage with the most? Hmm, that's a good question. I'm really excited for the special issues, I think. I think those are always the most uh, engaging issues for all the staff um, and for the reporters and the photographers. I mean, breaking news comes in and you know, sometimes like hit or miss whether people are interested in reporting on something, but typically like the special issues are where people really start to participate the most. Like we have a Black History Month issue coming out in February, a Women's History Month issue on the horizon too, a couple others that I'll keep secret until they actually come out. But yeah, that's what I'm most excited about. And you would, uh, we kind of touched on it a little bit earlier, um, the fall obviously was a very unique semester in terms of circumstances, given um, distance learning, uh, reporters not being able to have access to actual sources in person as much as possible. How do you feel the experiences of last semester will help not only the staff, but also the editorial board and everybody else this semester when encountering um, repeat challenges? I think the kind of challenges that we experienced last semester were so so special or out of the ordinary that the fact that we could actually get through them at all. Um, I don't think there's many other challenges that could come our way at this point that we aren't prepared for. Um, I mean, I don't know. I don't think there's been a staff in recent memory that had to deal with the types of things we had to deal with. Um, even just not being able to be in the newsroom together is pretty big. Um, it's, it's a pretty significant aspect of like team building um, so we had to get really creative on a lot of fronts with the types of challenges that we faced in the fall. Um, so I think that same creativity will carry over into whatever we face in the spring. And obviously, um, again, kind of like what we had mentioned, that these challenges were so unique in um, 
the way that we had to approach them, the staff had to approach them, the editorial board, everybody was kind of changing on the fly. Um, I really feel as if um, the maturation process of the next generation of reporters is going to be um, maybe greater than in the past. In your, uh, from your standpoint, how do you feel the reporters have grown over from initial start date to now in terms of their ability to adapt to situations? I think they've grown a lot. I mean, maybe it's nothing I can really pinpoint particularly, but I feel like everyone takes their job really seriously right now. Um, I mean, when I first came on as a reporter in the spring of 2020, um, the tone was really different because we weren't covering the types of things that we're covering right now. We were covering just school events or just really commonplace things. Um, I think that with the like gravity of the topics that we're covering, the pandemic and um, with all the changes happening on campus, um, I think people like on the staff really feel like their job is important. And um, it's like you're saying, like everyone's kind of had to mature really quickly because I think they recognize how valuable the reporting they're doing is to like the community, both on campus and in the state as a whole. And then for you personally in your position, um, given that you are the, the face of the paper, is there something that has happened underneath your tenure as editor-in-chief that you would consider to be one of your biggest achievements? Hmm. Let me think. I guess overall, I mean, the stuff with our budget was pretty big, but... I think honestly, just being able to step into the position after um, our former editor-in-chief left abruptly and to be able to just keep the paper going is my biggest achievement because uh, at the point that I stepped in as editor-in-chief, I'd only been uh, promoted to multimedia editor for I think like a month or something like that. So I hadn't really been on board for very long at all. I kind of had to get thrust into uh, taking the reins, I guess. Um, and I wasn't really sure whether I'd be capable of doing that successfully or not. So to have everything be okay at this point for people to feel like even slightly optimistic about how the spring semester is gonna go, that feels huge to me. And that people feel like it's worth still working at the paper. It's like, just makes me happy. And then uh, on top of that topic, um, obviously we've, uh, in your tenure, you've uh, edited, seen every story that we published. Um, would you say there's been any in particular that really stuck out to you or really impacted you the most where you, it resonated with you? There's a lot of stories like that. For some reason, the one that stuck with me for the longest time was the story that Bella Davis wrote about the shooting of Max Mitnick, but specifically um, the article that discussed the body cam footage that was released later. Um, I think I just never read an article like that. Um, most of the news that I consume is like breaking news, it has to come out really quickly. There's not a lot of time to like really dig into all of the details of the situation. It's just more like the who, what, when, where, and why, and any other necessary information. But I felt like that story that Bella wrote about the body cam footage was very humanistic. Like the whole aim was to inform, but it also 
was to humanize the subject. And I felt like it did a really good job of that. And then uh, for our readers, um, the, the Lobo has a very dedicated group of people who do consume our content on a, on a very regular basis. Um, if you could say, if you could send a message to our readers and kind of just summarize how the, what their support has meant to the paper, uh, how would you best do that? Oh, God. Um, I mean, to be frank, I don't think we would have gone through the fall semester without everyone's support, like, especially because there was times in the fall semester where we were receiving an equally intense amount of, um, what would you say? Not like hate, but there's a lot of people calling the office and sending me emails about articles that have been written, like just yelling at me basically about this, that, and the other thing, you know, because there's a lot of articles coming out about police brutality and politics and things that are really divisive. Um, and it was pretty disheartening at times. Like I, I try not to let that stuff get to me because we have to report on what we're going to report on no matter what, but seeing all that come in like week after week, uh, it really wore down on me. And I think everybody else, even like Bella Davis, somebody that's like really tough and knows how to deal with that kind of thing. I don't know, it just gets to you after a while. And having that support from the community, it meant so much to me. Like I, I even just the smallest comments online would make me smile for like the rest of the day because I felt like I had actually done my job right. So there's so, so many times in the fall semester where I asked myself if I was doing my job correctly or not. Like I was questioning myself constantly. Um, so yeah, it was, it was really the thing that kept the ship afloat. So it kind of seems like a constant theme throughout our conversation so far has been perseverance and growth, not only for you and the editor-in-chief position, but for the entire staff as a whole. Would that be something that you would also concur with? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the whole process that we went through in the fall, all of the like hardships and challenges that we faced, they only really solidified all of our own um, like goals with the paper or just the reasons why we chose to work here in the first place. I, I don't think we'd be able to stick around if we didn't feel like it was worth it. And I think the more we went along, the more we kind of honed in on that, like why, why it mattered to us and what we wanted to accomplish. Um, like the more challenges that we faced, I think the more determined a lot of us became to really do something with our time here. Um, yeah, and I think, uh, I don't know, when we started out, we were a little bit naive maybe, or naive to like what kind of challenges were around the corner. Um, I think we've really grown a lot of a, a thick skin after all of that, like together. I think it's not so much like confidence that we've developed, but just a really great deal of resilience. I, I feel really unfazed now by, by the sorts of things that, uh, kept me from sleeping at night last semester. And I, and I know a lot of people don't necessarily like to view, like to think about things as such as legacy or what their influence has done. But for you, um, if I could get you to be reflective for a moment, how, how would you, how would you describe 
or like to think of what your tenure as editor-in-chief has been and the example it will leave for people in the future who take on this role? Hmm. Legacy. I don't know. That's really tough because I don't feel like I'm that far into the job right now, but I don't know. To me, like, I feel like the legacy, at least this far, is just like strengthening the foundation of the paper and like reaffirming the paper's purpose. Um, I think that was something I noticed last, like in the spring of 2020. It, It just didn't feel like there was kind of this rallying cry for everyone or this kind of um, group purpose or like unified kind of end goal. I think that's definitely there now. And I, I hope that, I hope that carries over. Like I hope that same energy and enthusiasm um, carries over even after uh, things go quote unquote, like back to normal. Um, I think sometimes it's easy to forget at a student newspaper that the kind of reporting we're doing can have an impact beyond the university. Um, I think this year, this uh, fall and spring has really brought that back into the focus that um, there's really no limit to the kinds of things that we can achieve even as students. I I forget who said this, maybe it was Justin, Justin Garcia, like our old editor-in-chief from like last year from 2020. Um, that we're some, something along the lines of like, we're not student journalists, we're journalists that happen to be students. And I, everyone says that all the time in the office, but I think it holds merit. Um, especially when I think about the reporting that Bella Davis has done, that uh, Lisa Knudsen has done, our news editor, um, that all of our new reporters and photographers have done. Um, it's, it's on the same caliber as the local news. It's no different in my eyes. Like the only difference is just experience, but the like, like drive and the desire to get the story right is there. And I think it, um, if, that can, if that can persist, I think uh, paper will be better off. So Lisa, this week, uh, the story that you had published in the paper was uh, headline state money for childcare available for, uh, to graduate students. Um, do you mind just providing the readers with a quick summary of what this story entailed? Sure. Uh, you know, this story is about actually, I guess it was a decade long effort by multiple graduate student leaders um, over the years to try to advocate for getting rid of a specific line that was in a state rule in the executive, you know, the governors get to set rules for policies. And at least 10 years ago, but maybe longer, and we think it was happened during the Richard administration, there was when they created this rule that allowed for childcare assistance, meaning if you're low income and you needed to get childcare, you could get state funding to help subsidize those costs. They had a line there that specifically prohibited graduate students from being able to. So students, undergraduate students were eligible but graduate students weren't. And so over the years, they had tried to 
get that changed. And ultimately what ended up happening after the pandemic hit, uh, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham in, you know, used her executive authority back in September and said she used, you know, like she just used her authority to make an emergency clause and to allow graduate students to be able to get childcare assistance. And then um, earlier this month, there was a hearing on January 6th where about 75 showed up and they are starting the process to actually formally change that rule so it is codified for the future and it doesn't need to be an emergency rule and all graduate students who are parents and are income eligible will be able to get childcare. And the cost of childcare I know has been one of the one of the more hotly debated topics, uh, not only in New Mexico, but around the country as well. Um, one of your interviews to start the article with Naomi uh, states that she pays $568 a month in childcare costs, um, which is pretty uh, astonishing to most people. Was that stunning to you to hear how much child cost was monthly? Yeah, I actually was really surprised by that. And, you know, she made the point to say that she has her her son is in childcare at the UNM Children's Campus at half time solely because she couldn't afford to put him in for full time. She wants to finish her degree. She wants to be able to, you know, get in and out as soon as possible so she can, you know, get a job as a professor, hopefully somewhere. And she just simply couldn't afford to put him in because it would have been double that if he'd been in for full time. And uh, earlier in the podcast, I spoke to Anna about her article that dealt with the grad union. Um, and one of the points made in her article was UNM um, trying to spin the idea that graduate assistants and students don't necessarily count as employees in the university's eyes. In this article, um, it also makes reference to the fact that the money that these assistants do get paid still makes them within 100 to 200% of the federal poverty line. So that also plays a part in the fact that this is an issue not only with childcare assistance, but also with the amount of money that these people are getting paid by the university as well, correct? Yeah, if I remember correctly, in um, Anna Marie's story, the university was like, we're not trying to pay a living wage. This is just supposed to be a supplement in order to help students to finish their education. And I just felt that, that was really disconnected because as, as this story shows, you know, we're human beings who are a little bit older than undergraduates. So we are more likely to have started a family and maybe, you know, trying to actually live our lives in a way that, you know, costs money. And in order to pay the bills and continue to feed yourself and take care of a family, you have to have an income um, or you can't, you can't live month to month. So it's impossible to be, you know, to progress in your education if you are underwater and you're just trying to make things work by cobbling together an assistantship that is not compensating you well, which is kind of fascinating because that exact same class could be taught by a, you know, full-time tenured faculty member and they would get paid a living wage, right? Like at least $80,000 a year, full benefits, pensions, you know, all the other things. So that class has, has that kind of value to the university. But when, you know, graduate students teach or, or do the research, you can get away with sort of um, undercutting that and saving costs. And Lisa, one of the more stunning things to me going through the article, and I think for our readers as well, um, is um, the idea that the graduate students 
were within the guidelines for everything except the fact that they were graduate students. That was the only thing prohibiting them from these child care assistance programs. And if you could just for uh, explain to us a little bit more how shocking of an idea that truly is that because of the profession that they're in, they are denied child care assistance. You know, I asked every single person that I interviewed why they thought that the graduate students were prohibited. And um, some, you know, just laughed and said it was ridiculous. They couldn't even conceive of. And, you know, some speculated that at the time, maybe money, you know, was seen as sort of tight and that they felt that undergraduates might be even more in need, that by the time you get to graduate school, you could go out and get a job that, you know, was high paying. And and I think that, you know, the economy has evidenced that that's in fact not true. You need a graduate degree now for many jobs. And, um, and so I just, I, I think it was, maybe with some good intent or, or at least ill-informed intent um, to be generous. But ultimately, I think it's great that this current administration is not looking for ways not to help you know, young parents with young children to be able to you know, go to work or go to school. And on that last point, another part of the article that struck me as very interesting was uh, when you spoke to Melissa, who is a third year American studies PhD student, and parents as well. She had mentioned that her department is very tolerant with her bringing her child to seminars. And the, the part about that that was very interesting is um, she, it, it almost seems like she is saying, oh, I'm lucky that my department will let me bring my child to these seminars. But it's, it's not really necessarily solving probably the issue that she would like to have solved, which is being able to have her child in childcare um, so she's able to dedicate time to this, the classroom and also her child is receiving uh, attention when is needed. Yeah, I mean, I think that she, you know, as a parent myself, I think that there's two sides to that. I think that it, ideally we would have a culture and a society that would not shame parents for having their children near them. Um, like if you go to Cuba or other places around the world, in fact, having children around in the workplace is not seen as unprofessional. Um, but in American dominant culture, in fact, it is seen that way. And so bringing a child to school can be a really stressful environment because you don't ever know if like your peers or your, you know, the teachers or the instructors are going to shame you or, or give you a hard time like you're not dedicated enough because you brought a child and then they're expected as children to absolutely not act like kids right they can't cause any sort of disturbance they can't play they can't laugh they can't giggle they can't you know run around outside or do anything like that so they have to usually put on some headphones and you know watch a show on a you know ipad or some some sort of device like that and that's not always fun for them i mean they get pretty resentful ultimately for having, you know, to be drug around and just have to sit and be quiet all the time. So it's not an ideal situation, but I don't know if the solution is, is just to, you know, say that childcare solves all those problems, because I think ideally it would be great to have a culture that actually was just child warm and friendly and supportive. And so there wasn't that sense of shame. And you mentioned that this has been an ongoing issue um, for almost uh, a decade now. Where do you see this going from here? Um, the fact that now that this has been approved, um, where do you, what do you see the next step for this being? 
So actually one, one correction on that. So the, the emergency rule is in order and, and um, graduate students are currently able to get childcare assistance, but it's temporary. So the process that's happening right now is, is the necessary process in order for it to be codified and become a formally you know, official rule. And that hasn't happened yet. So the, the ECECD, the new um, department that uh, was created by this current governor um, is still accepting feedback. And as long as the feedback goes well and everything looks good, I guess I presume they're also looking at budget and things like that, then we will hopefully get word or you know the, the people I interviewed so that they expected to get word within the next six months of if this goes through. And if it does, then for the rest of this administration, it's set in stone and it will, you know, that all graduate student parents will be eligible for it. Now, the, the caveat though, is whoever is elected to the next, uh, to be the next governor could change the rule again and go through that process and actually change it back or, you know, make it so that no one was eligible for childcare assistance if they wanted to. Um, it would be hard, right? It takes a while, you have to go through these steps but it, it would be possible to do that. And then uh, my last question for you was just overall impact of the story. Um, obviously, it deals with a lot of hot button issues um, that are talked about nowadays. Um, for you personally, how, how was crafting this article uh, effective on you? And then what impact do you hope it has for our readers and those who um, or do you care about this issue and really want to find a, a resolution for it? Uh, you know, for me personally, I, I was invested in this story and I thought it was great to go to that hearing and to see that for all 75 people that showed up from the community, uh, none of them spoke against this rule change. If anything, they were like, you should take it further. More people should be eligible. I think there was um, a, a representative there from the Asian Family Community Center who was like, make it so that grandparents who are watching their children can also get this kind of support. So I think that that was really heartening to hear that so many members of the community were in support of this change. Um, I think that if anyone wants to, you know, follow this effort and find out, you know, what's happening in the future with it, they should contact uh, the governor's office or ECECD and um, just let them know that they think this is a good idea. Uh, so I think that's what's what's coming next. All righty, Liam. So this week you actually had two articles featured in the paper. Uh, the first one being more stimulus money for students, but timing remains uncertain regarding the uh, updated stimulus package that should be hitting UNM uh, sometime in the near future. And then you did have a secondary photo story also featured in the paper this week called State uh, Police National Guard Troops Patrol Roundhouse in uh, response to FBI warnings. I wanted to start with the stimulus article though. Um, in your words, could you just provide our readers with a summary of what this article entails? Sure. Um, so it all started back in April of 2020 with the passage of the CARES Act, and that provided funding for something called the Higher Education Emergency Relief Fund. Um, and that was dedicated to giving institutions of higher education such as UNM, CNM, New Mexico Tech, and, you know, just all, all around the nation, um, institutions like that funding to help with coronavirus expenses. Um, half of that money, though, uh, allocated to each institution was meant to go to direct grants for students to help with their expenses like food or housing related to the pandemic. 
Um, and the other half of that funding is supposed to go towards the cost of new technology for the university um, to transition to online learning. So the recent Consolidated Appropriations Act uh, gave a second round of funding for that, um, for those grants. So the university itself will get more funding and uh, there will be more funding available for direct grants to students. Interesting. And the article um, makes reference to the first round of funding being a, uh, a sum awarded to students being either 465 or uh, $779, depending on the uh, contrib expected contributions of their family. Um, the article also does make reference that this next round of funding um, <clears throat> didn't have an exact number. Um, the number was kind of up in the air in terms of how much money the university was going to be receiving. Um, it has been clarified, though, that the uh, university amount expected this time around is going to be uh, $22.5 million. Um, how do you expect that to be distributed around the university, given that it is a little bit of a drop off from the first amount of uh, money that was received? Well, actually, um, so the amount that was received um, in the previous funding was 17.2 million. Uh, so the university is actually receiving more than, ex than, um, than the last round of funding, but less than was expected in estimates from independent organizations that tried to calculate it, like the American Council on Education. Um, they thought that UNM was gonna be receiving about 31 million. Um, that's a bit lower, but still um, more than what was received in the CARES Act. Um, now, this new round of funding, uh, the bill specifies that the same amount has to be allocated for students for those grants. So not necessarily same the same percentage. So again, we'll get about 8.6 million minimum to go towards those student grants. UNM can um, use more towards those grants, um, but it's, it's kind of up to the, ins the institution. Um, the Department of Education also specified for this round um, that students with, quote, exceptional need be prioritized. Now that's a pretty broad definition um, and it could be like last time with the expected family contributions that people with a lower expected family contribution money that's, you know, given to them or, you know, help from their families um, for school related expenses and tuition, um, they could use that, but it's really up to the university, and we're not too sure yet um, how UNM is planning to allocate that. Uh, and since this, the Department of Education is involved in kind of this transaction, um, with the new Biden administration incoming and now in place, um, do you see the changing of leadership in the Department of Education delaying the stimulus bill from hitting university and university students? That's a possibility. Um, you know, the department took a while to put out guidance in general about these funds. Um, I, when I talked to university administration uh, early in January, they had a lot of um, a lot of their responses was, "Well, we're still waiting on the Department of Education for guidance for these things." And you know, I checked plenty of times their website, and uh, it was you know it was lacking information. Now, of course. This was over the holidays. Um, this was uh, in the process of, um, you know, this this was in a period where the federal government was kind of up in the air with a lot of things. 
And that made it only more complicated with the um, resignation of the education secretary following the insurrection at the Capitol. Um, Betsy DeVos resigned the day after, I believe. Um, but these new guidelines that they've put out now, they seem to be solidifying these, um, at least the allocation amounts. We're still not entirely sure, at least I haven't seen yet, um, when these are going to be distributed to universities. They are going to be distributed automatically to universities who had applied to the CARES Act funds. So there won't need to be another round of, you know, filling out forms and stuff. Um, they'll just be sent there automatically. Um, and that includes UNM. Um, but I think I expect from this administration um, more, well, I, I think I think one thing they'll they'll be doing well is um, is getting it to people beyond just um, U.S. citizens um, like DACA students or undocumented students. Um, the Department of Education recently clarified that an interim final rule that they had um, put in place for the CARES Act that excluded those students from uh, these grants that does not apply to this new round of funding. So that implies that um, undocumented and DACA students may be eligible for these funds as well. And I mean, the, obviously the word stimulus and the ongoing issue of it have been really hotly debated topics in the country as of late. Um, when writing the article, um, did you get a sense of how heavy this issue does weigh on not only university officials, um, but also students as well that are in need of this aid? Sorry, um, could you say that one more time? Yeah, um, when writing the article, um, did you feel the, the weight of the issue itself um, where people um, who are in need of this financial aid are kind of having to sit and wait around for it to come across, to come for them. Um, was that something that you noticed or something that you took account of when writing the article? Well, unfortunately, I couldn't reach out to a lot of um, uh, students to talk about these issues. I did do some um, outreach on social media, but didn't get a whole lot of responses. But yes, it does seem like, you know, every second counts with this kind of stimulus money, um, you know, and especially when you're using it to, you know, make sure you still have a roof over your head or make sure you still have food on the table. Um, this is definitely something that is urgently needed, um, especially to those people who have, like the Department of Education specifies, an exceptional need. So the sooner the better, definitely for, for all of these students. And an, another problem is these stimulus checks that are coming out that a lot of people are getting, the ones from the Treasury Department this, you know, that is a subject of hot debate, like the um, 600 payments this round or the 1200 from the CARES Act back in April. Um, students who are dependents, who are listed as dependents on tax returns, aren't eligible for that money, and neither are the people claiming them. Um, because if, if someone is over 17, the guardians or parents or whoever is claiming them doesn't get a bonus in their stimulus money for them either. Um, so really, they don't get any help from the Treasury Department, those students with that are um, classified as dependents, even though, you know, 
a dependent could be living on campus, living, you know, on their own and getting financial help. Sure. But, um, you know, it's, it's not as, it doesn't really discriminate between those who are getting, you know, a lot of help and those who are getting a little bit of help from their families. So that's why these grants generally go off of expected family contributions. And, and shifting gears to the second article you had featured in the paper this week, um, another very hotly contested issue um, were the um, threats of violence at state capitals um, issued by the FBI warnings to all the, the state officials. Um, and obviously, New Mexico did take these threats very seriously with increased um, police presence and National Guard presence at the Roundhouse. Um, you featured a photo story um, with some pretty powerful images of fences being erected around the Roundhouse National Guardsmen standing guard at intersections. Um, could you just describe for us what the feeling was like being on the ground in that kind of environment? It was tense. Um, you know, I, I've heard a lot um, about, uh, you know, and the FBI released warnings about the, the potential for violence at all 50 state capitals um, in the days leading up to Biden's inauguration. Um, and the when I went up to Santa Fe on January 16th, um, that was the first day of their warnings. Um, they said that to expect that between January 16th to at least inauguration day. And what I found was the whole place was pretty deserted. Um, they did allow foot traffic through, um, but they were barricading all the roads for from vehicle traffic. And there were a lot of state police um, and there were National Guardsmen as well. I should note that um, I didn't notice any of the National Guardsmen carrying firearms. Um, state police obviously were armed, but National Guardsmen were mostly, there was about one to two per checkpoint. Um, and it seemed like they were just assisting um, with uh, traffic control and barricading roads. And one in, one image in particular that I really wanted to touch on was the uh, picture you took of um, the roundhouse in the background with the fencing in front of it with no trespassing, um, a sign attached to the fence. Um, it's a pretty stark image um, given the rhetoric that was leading up to the inauguration. Um, when you were capturing images on the ground of the on the grounds of the roundhouse, were there any particular um, images you were looking to capture, or was this all just kind of whatever you found interesting? Well, I wanted to capture that feeling of of um, kind of the people's house behind chain link link fences. I mean, this is a place where it's generally bustling with activity. And lawmakers and press and um, and everyone just kind of going about their day, and it's not as high security as you would you know as is now um, given these threats of violence, given what happened at the Capitol on January sixth. Um, so it's it's something you know having to do with uh, the balance between accessibility to the people, because these are people who we've elected, this, this is our government, um, and protection for those lawmakers who have received threats or um, who, you know, are in danger of potential political violence. 
Um, I, I think that personally, the fences in those pictures aren't as um, sturdy as one might expect them to be. Uh, to me, they seemed a little flimsy. Uh, I think with a, you know, it, it wouldn't take much to knock them over, but um, luckily not, no violence um, was seen in those four days leading up to the, to the um, inauguration, and we haven't seen any since. And that was kind of leading into my last question. Um, obviously, at the time of, the, of this interview, um, the inauguration is coming on, and there was little to no instances of violence um, that took place at any state capitol. Um, looking back now at the um, what was when you took the pictures versus what has happened now that it is all said and done, what is probably the, what is your biggest takeaway um, from this story and something that will stick with you um, as you move on through the rest of the semester and the rest of the stories you look to publish? I think a big takeaway for this is that the social media crackdown on violence and um, extremist rhetoric has worked to an extent. Um, we've noticed uh, Twitter getting more um, aggressive with uh, shutting down threads that advocate for violence. Um, they even banned uh, former President Trump during his last couple weeks in office following that um, Capitol insurrection. Um, what a lot of right right wing extremist groups seem to gravitate now towards is um, encrypted messaging messaging apps like Telegram or Signal, which you know are are sure they're more secure, but they're also private messaging apps, so they don't have the range um, of social media. It's it's like texting. Um, you know, it's it doesn't have the ability to really form those massive groups that you saw at the Capitol on January 6th. Uh, on January 6th. Um, so I think that, and you know, of course, um, the increased law enforcement presence was certainly was the deterrent as well as the 25,000 National Guardsmen and women at um, the Capitol building in DC. So Anna, the article that you wrote uh, this week is UNM files to block graduate student unions right to organize. Um, if you would, please just kind of summarize the story for our readers. Um, so, uh, well, it was initially it was talking about how they filed for recognition and then the whole story had to change because, um, you know, they were being denied that. Um, so Basically, the article talks about um, their journey to get to the point where they could file for recognition and then um, like the feelings that were associated with that and um, and then like the feelings associated with um, UNM's response to it, which was, uh, you know, not what they had expected because they were really confident that the board was gonna um, recognize them because they do a lot of really hard work for the university and you know they have on record saying that you, you know well they have on record by part of the uh, one of the 
school representatives um, that they were, you know, the graduate workers are employees and they have the right to unionize. But, um, you know, so then they talked about like just how it felt when, um, I don't know, they said that they weren't because it, it just was very, I don't know. So the article talks about that um, and some details like regarding just how other universities in other states also have unionized, the grad workers have unionized and um, just that that should be applied like across board. Uh, one of the things that I found most interesting about the article um, was UNM's explanation for why gra these grad assistants and graduate students do not qualify as full-time or regular UNM employees. Um, the explanation given by Cinnamon Blair, who's UNM's chief marketing communications officer, was pretty interesting, uh, where she quoted as um, that they provide financial support to allow them to continue their studies, but their primary role is to be a student. Um, hearing her say that to you, was it pretty shocking that that was UNM's rationale for not qualifying these as employees? Yeah, because, I mean, we're students, um, the grad students are just as much employees as they are students. Yeah, like they should be primarily students because that's why they're, you know, going to school here and that's why they have these jobs. But you know, they also have those jobs for a reason and they still require like the same amount of like living expenses to be paid for that, you know, other workers do. And they do give the grad workers a lot of work to be like to be done and um, to shift the weight from the um, what UNM would, I guess, recognized to be the actual employees, which is like the professors and the instructors and whatnot. So, I mean, I, I was a little shocked, but also not because that just seems something that, you know, the university would say in, you know, in response to them wanting, um, you know, better benefits and everything because they, you know, the university may not want to provide that. So. And um, you mentioned at the start of this article that the, uh, the grad union filed to be recognized um, by the public uh, employees labor relations board back on December 9th. Um, this has been an ongoing story that the Lobo has been covering for quite a while now. Mm -hmm. um, and this is just the latest development and their fight to be uh, recognized as an actual union. Where do you think this issue goes from here? because UNM has kind of issued an interesting roadblock by uh, doing this 180 and trying to prove that they are not actually employees. How do you think this gets resolved or the next step moving forward? Well, I'm actually, I just picked up an article yesterday um, on what the, the unionization effort next move is and they're doing a car caravan um protest on the 27th wednesday the 27th um and so i'm going to be covering that and their response to unm so um that's where this story goes from there and then eventually you know 
should everything go the way that they're hoping, you know, it's going to be about them actually getting the recognition that they worked hard for. And then my next question for you personally, um, this story, uh, as we mentioned before, deals with a pretty long going issue and it's a very hotly contested issue um, where workers are trying to gain unionized rights to get better benefits, better pay, better wages. Mm-hmm. Um, for you, what was the most interesting part of this story that going into it, you may not have known and coming out on the other side, you kind of have a different view of? Honestly, I think the part that uh, intrigued me the most was just all the feelings that these workers had, that these people had, and, you know, everything that fueled that, that, you know, just increased the um, amount of anger that they had. And uh, the pandemic, the way the pandemic really, like, pushed them forward, because it brought into light, you know, the university's response to how to go about during the pandemic. And um, one of the students that I interviewed said that it was even more infuriating, um, and I'm paraphrasing here, but that it was even more infuriating after seeing how the university was treating them after the pandemic because their needs increase with just all of the changes in, you know, the surrounding environment and, um, and in like this different culture that's induced by the global pandemic. And um, they said that they didn't think that they would get this far without, or this far this quickly, more like, um, if it wasn't for that, because it really just, you know, gave them that final boost of like motivation and, and like passion to just get to this point faster. And I thought that was um, probably the most interesting thing that I learned about the whole movement. And that concludes the second edition of The Howl. The Daily Lobo's weekly podcast where we break down the biggest stories of the week with the reporters who wrote them. I want to extend a special thanks to Alex, Lissa, Liam, and Anna for being available to sit down with me this week to discuss their stories. I also want to thank you, the Daily Lobo readers, for your continued support and for taking time to listen to this podcast. Until next week, this is Gino Gutierrez, Managing Editor, signing off.